Welcome to the Virgin Active Minds podcast by Virgin Active, where we dive deep into conversations with the best and the brightest minds in the health and well-being world. If you've got questions about health, exercise, or any dimension of well-being, we've got the answers one expert at a time. I'm Mark Cito, your host, because I love all things well-being. From exercise, work, relationships, and going deep inside our minds, I'm here to explore it all with you. This is what they came for. In this episode, I chat to Krista Scott-Dixon. Krista is the Director of Curriculum at Precision Nutrition, which offers the world's number one nutrition coaching certification. She's the one that writes the curriculum, so she's someone we want to listen to. She has a PhD from York University. She's a trained counsellor, a personal trainer, and has been coaching and teaching for over 20 years. She's a researcher, has written numerous articles and reports, and is a published author. What I love about KSD is that she keeps things real. Her latest book, Why Me Want Eat, tackles the really deep topic of disordered eating, but in a real life way. Apologies for the background noise in this episode and the essence of keeping things real and living in the middle of a pandemic, we were both working from home. She had construction, I had sirens. But I think the topics in this chat about food and mindset will surely fill up your ear holes and outshine the rest. Enjoy. Welcome, Krista. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for having me here. No worries. I am so excited to chat to you all things nutrition. Um, it's been a long time since we've been able to hang out. Five years, I think. I saw a Facebook memory pop up of our time hanging out at Virgin Active in Melbourne um, five years ago time has flown past. Yeah, for real. Krista, can you, for our listeners, give us a bit of an idea on who you are, what you stand for? Yeah, so I am uh, Krista Scott-Dixon. I am the Director of Curriculum at Precision Nutrition. And so for folks who don't know what Precision Nutrition is, we are the world's leading certifier of nutrition coaches. And we also coach clients as well. And so we've coached about 100,000 clients, uh, all walks of life, everyone from regular folks to professional elite athletes, uh, you know, military, tactical personnel, high performance people. Um, and then we also certify nutrition coaches. And we've had about 100,000 of those go through our certification programs. And so my job is basically to kind of know a little bit about everything in terms of all of the skills that anyone could ever possibly need to be a nutrition coach. So whether that's, you know, biochemistry, the science of nutrition, gastroenterology, neurology, endocrinology, you know, how to make a chicken, <laughs> uh, how to coach people. You know, my specialty is really more uh, in behavior change and kind of how to, you know, how to help people change their habits, change their practices, change their perspective. But uh, in my role, I kind of have to know a bit of everything about everything. And then in terms of what capacity I'm related to Virgin Active, I mean, as we were saying, I uh, came out about five years ago to Australia to do training sessions for Virgin when they were just starting to uh, bring precision nutrition coaching into their clubs. And so when people signed up, they would have the opportunity to do uh, coaching. And so we have this, you know, very specific coaching curriculum in a way that we coach and uh, teach, you know, nutrition and, and habit change to people. And so I was there to train 
the, the trainers on how to do this. And one of my most enduring memories was my first day there saying, listen, uh, you know, to everyone, I'm sorry if, you know, cause I'm from, I'm from Canada and you're from Australia. And I'm sorry if I say anything that's like inadvertently offensive. And someone piped up from the back of the room and said, we're the Australians. We're usually the ones offending everybody else. And I just thought that was hilarious. So, um, so yeah, I have very like happy, good memories of Virgin Active in my time there. Oh, beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. And I also have such great memories of that time. It was a really great couple of weeks uh, hanging out with you and learning all about precision nutrition and how to be incredible um, nutrition coach. Now, I got a question for you. um, And it's something that I ask all of our guests at the very start. Um, What motivates you to get out of bed every morning? It's a good question because I'll tell you, uh, my partner has a very early shift. And so when that alarm goes off at 4.45 in the morning, uh, it certainly takes motivation to get out of bed and face the day. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I would say is that for me, the driving motivation has always been to be of service. And I think that coaching, training, educating, um, these are all roles that let us be of service to people. And so fundamentally, you know, what drives me has always been this kind of desire to be helpful or to bring understanding to people. And so I try to put everything through that frame. And so even if it's really like a boring work task that I'm doing, like I'm formatting a spreadsheet or something, I really try to remember like somehow this is going to trickle down to helping someone and particularly in certification, like me doing a spreadsheet today could create a course tomorrow, which could train a hundred or a thousand coaches to coach their clients. And if each coach has 10 clients or 15 clients, like you can do the math and see how it really starts to add up. So the motivation for me is really just trying to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. And in very real and concrete ways and trying to make those links very explicit to myself. I mean, that's an incredible purpose to have. Keeping with the theme of just diving in, right? We're just going to dive in there. Nutrition, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that our listeners want to hear about. Um, diet culture. When I think about diet culture, I guess there's a couple of things that pop up for me. One, it's what am I going to be eliminating, right? What am I going to be getting rid of? Uh, And the other one is who's the bad guy, Mm. right? Like when you think about diet culture, it's like carbs, for example, always has been, maybe always will be the bad guy. Um, So what's your take on diet culture and where we're at with it? Well, you know, it's so interesting that you just said that because like about the bad guy, because I really, you know, if we think about the term culture, like culture is about defining yourself as part of a group or part of a community. Um, And in order to do that, a lot of the time you have to define who is in and who is out, right? Who is the us and who is the them? And diet culture has always thrived on drawing these kinds of boundaries um, to say, okay, this food is bad, this behavior is bad, this kind of person is bad, this kind of body is bad. Um, and, and there's a limited range of things in diet culture that are good. It's like, if, if we think about diet culture as a culture, it would be a society that's like extremely rigid, unforgiving, punishment oriented, like it would actually be a pretty sucky country to live in mm-hmm. <laughs> this world society, yeah. right? Um, and so, You know, my take on diet culture as a culture is that it's a dysfunctional culture to participate in because uh, it it really has none of the hallmarks of, you know, ensuring physical, mental and emotional health, because 
it's, you know, first of all, it's extremely rigid. Um, like I said, unrelenting, unforgiving, punishment oriented, but more than anything else, it's a short term paradigm. So you could not mm. live in the country of diet culture forever. It's not your forever home, yeah. right? So it's like it's like a place that you visit and they beat you up for a while and they throw you out of the country, right? <laughs> and then you keep trying to get back in. Right. Um, so, you know, that's really my take on it is that really that it's fundamentally unsustainable. But what it does is like any toxic culture, it exploits people's natural, healthy good desires for change and transformation and to alleviate suffering like diet culture you know comes to a person that is suffering and says oh i have a solution for you um it's going to suck worse <laughs> in a way than the, the suffering you're experiencing but it's going to give you the illusion of a solution and i think for me that's really the most harmful thing about it is that it preys on people who are in a pretty vulnerable state whether that's you know, I have a health issue or I'm aging or I've had a life transition or, you know, just whatever. Um, it really exploits that part of us that wants to feel better. And is that why it's still a thing? You mean, like, is that, that, that preying on, you know, the vulnerable? I mean, is that why diet culture is still today in 2021, still a massive thing? I think that's part of it. I mean, I think there's a couple other pieces. One of them is intermittent reward. So if you think about the slot machine, if you play the slot machines like in Las Vegas or whatever, uh, you know, you don't win at slots every time, but you win sometimes and you win kind of randomly or what seems like randomly. So we know that intermittent rewards, rewards that you get randomly and sometimes mm -hmm. are much more compelling than consistent rewards. So right. diet culture offers you a, an intermittent reward, like first day of the new diet, you've got your, I don't know, green juice or whatever it is you're doing for this diet, right? And you finish that day and you're like, oh, I did it. I'm winning life. I'm going to be so whatever it is you want, ripped, lean, fit, whatever, right? So you have this little hit of reward and maybe you stick to it for a week or two weeks and you see some change in whatever direction you want and you get that hit of like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And you imagine all of the, you know, all the ways your life is going to magically change because you did this. So, and then of course, you know, you crash or it's unsustainable or, you know, Tuesday after Monday doesn't work out and, and you're kind of back in the hole again. So intermittent reward. And then the third piece is the, the appearance of scientific expertise. And I think that is something that people find very mm -hmm. compelling. Like if I can come up with something that sounds yeah. really sciencey, I mean, that seems yeah. like a good idea and, and something you want to do. So I think many of these diets really kind of have this um kind of frame of science or pseudoscience like it sounds sciencey enough it feels like well that could be legit um and i think that's what makes them you know in, in conjunction i think that's what makes it particularly dangerous and do you think people in i mean in, you've obviously coached so many people um do you think people are diving into these diets thinking that it is going to be a long-term thing i think if you ask them straight up they don't believe it. And I mean, your question really illustrates kind of like the, the, the schism that exists within our own brains, right? Part of our brain is very good at thinking about sustainability, long-term consequences, cause and effect, right? Like that's kind of the planning, the, the adult planning brain that we use at our jobs and that kind of thing. But the part of our brain that tends to drive the bus on this is a brain that is very oriented towards short-term gratification, immediate rewards, immediate alleviation of suffering, uh, just kind of mm. flailing around for anything that's going to take the pain away. 
And so I think, yeah. you know, if I ask people in a, in a kind of like a wise mind moment, listen, do you think this is a solution forever? They'd say, no, I really don't think so. But that's not the brain that typically is making most of the decisions here. And do you think there is more of a push these days to eat better, you know, more sustainably? I mean, do you think, do you think we're kind of, do you think PN is, is winning, you know? Yeah. What a, what a, what a neat frame. I think there's, it's almost like we are relearning how to eat because like 10,000 years ago, we were just eating, right? We just had a set of skills that we would use to extract food from our environment. Whereas I think in 2021, it's almost like a lot of us are relearning how to eat. And so, you know, for example, because we've been so divorced from agricultural production, for example, we are relearning the fact that food comes out of the ground (laughs) or that comes like an animal format or something like that. And so I I do think in, in some ways there's been a very beneficial attention given to things like where does food come from and also like how is food part of cultures and how do we preserve cultures right like you know when when folks come to australia they come to canada often there's a temptation to leave behind the foods um that they grew up with and you know a lot of people are interested in like preserving those cultures that they brought with them and that's been the case for you know decades and decades so i think there is a little bit of a renewed interest in things like that as well as ecological sustainability um you know, mm-hmm. kind of the food quality like what's in our food is it stuff we want to be eating um so i think there's a lot of good stuff there are we winning i don't know because the opponent is is deeply formidable right the opponent is mm. an industrial food system that really doesn't care <laughs> to be honest about your health uh in like it doesn't it does not care about you it is just a machine and not to demonize it not to be like there's a conspiracy but it's it's simply the agenda of industrial food production is to produce a lot of food at the lowest cost it is not to you know yeah. meet yeah. your needs and i guess you know you look at instagram and you know there are some really positive things that are happening there a lot of us are taking photos of our food these days especially if it is healthy you know post-workout kind of stuff with that side of things why do you think we're doing that is that is that for our health or are we you know is has it got a bit of a sinister side of things you know we're taking this food selfie to i guess boost the ego yeah i mean no one's no one's instagramming the sloppy macaroni and cheese that they ate at three in the morning that had chocolate chips <laughs> in it right like, no one's instagramming that um yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the issue is quite complex, and I do think that there's elements of coming to discover an interesting world. Like when when people learn about food and they expand their horizons a little bit, it can be really fun and really interesting and really mm-hmm. educational and really validating. And you explore things, and you you say, you know, do I like this? Do I not like that? You know, how can I push my envelope? Right. And so, documenting food can be part of that, and it can be part of many people's journey. Um, sometimes they keep themselves accountable that way. You know, um, if you're part of a coaching group, Hey guys, here's what I had for breakfast. Right. Um, so I think there's lots of really beneficial elements of that. The tricky thing is when we mistake the image, the carefully curated image for the real thing or for reality. Um, and so like we, we start to develop, you know, if, if you're not familiar with how reality operates a lot of the time, like let's say, you know, we, we imagine how would a fit person live? And we have this image of how that looks. 
if you have never been an extremely fit person and understand like the experience of how they really live their lives, they have dirty laundry and they have dogs and they have jobs and they eat out of Tupperware. Like they have lives that are very familiar to anyone else, but that's not how we imagine them. Right. So unless you have direct experience of, yeah. of that very real lifestyle, um, you imagine that there's this world where ultra healthy people are doing ultra healthy things all the time. And so I think the danger there is you, uh, you create a false idea of what is actually happening and what is actually achievable. And then I think a lot of people, uh, as the saying goes, compare and despair. So they compare themselves mm -hmm. to what they think other people are doing and inevitably they fall short and then they feel badly about themselves. So it's like a very kind of like, um, you know, dysfunctional kind of feedback loop. But if you look at Instagram or social and you feel excited and inspired. Oh, that's cool. That's something I could try. Then I say, keep doing that. So really like you can look critically at what is the effect this is having on me? Because the same thing is not going to have the same effect on absolutely everybody. It's so interesting, right? Like Instagram, for example, or, or any of these social medias, it's like they can be such an incredible tool for motivation and inspiration. But I guess we have to keep that lens of, let's just be reminded that we are all human behind these photos. You know, I can tell you, you know, your listeners from experience, and I think this is something that's very important to know. You have to look at the long-term trajectory of everybody. So even athletes with the most elite performance and beautiful physiques retire, they age, they have kids, yeah. they whatever, right? So if you look at someone who has whatever you consider a perfect body or a perfect life or a perfect diet now, go back and check them out in three months or six months or a year or two years and yeah. see if that thing has stuck. And there's actually been, there's been a meme I've been, been enjoying, which is me at the start of 2020 and me at the end of 2020. And some of the funniest ones are like people that are like, yeah, 2020, I'm super fit. And then by the end of 2020, they were like, this is me in a blanket instead of clothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it really, and, and so the, the secret, I think a lot of people don't understand is that people with ideal, what, uh, what seem to be ideal lives and physiques are, um, either very selectively showing you only their greatest hits or underneath it, they are coping with things like disordered eating or, uh, you know, addictive mm. exercise behaviors or something like that. So there's, there's often a dark side to what looks like the perfect life. Well, look, staying on the topic of um, social media and Instagram in particular, I was scrolling through the P, uh, the Precision Nutrition's Instagram page, which is, I love it. Um, but back in October, there was a, a post that you guys put up um, in regards to deep health. And I was hoping you could maybe give us a bit of a, a, a dive into, you know, what, what do you consider deep health? Yeah, so... The idea came from our experiences in coaching where we might coach someone to eat really healthy and they get in the zone of eating really healthy and maybe they achieve all their fitness goals. But along the way, other aspects of their life get out of balance, right? So maybe they hit, now they're hitting, like, now they're hitting the gym seven days a week and they're putting all their meals in Tupperware. And, you know, again, their performance looks amazing. Their body looks amazing. But then if you kind of look at their life, you're like, wait a minute, you haven't, you don't have any hobbies outside the gym. You don't really see your friends. You don't have strong relationships. You're not really a happy person. Like there's lots of other things in your life that are actually out of order. So we developed this concept of deep health to say, 
you know, health is a really multi-dimensional thing. Um, and we came up with six dimensions. You can come up with any number of dimensions. It's not like these are the rules, but we were like, okay, let's look at physical health, emotional health, mental health, which we were, we kind of define it more as like cognitive health. Like how does your brain work? Um, your social health, like the health of your relationships, um, your existential health, which some people call like spiritual health. I think of it as like, you know, what's your sense of meaning and purpose in the world? Uh, is that healthy? And then the final one is environmental health, like what's around you. Um, and so this has allowed us to really think much more broadly and much more richly about what does it mean to be healthy? And it's not like this is some new ideal. You know, you know people listening are like, oh, great. Now I have to be healthy in six ways <laughs> instead of one. <laughs> it's really more about, you know, talking to clients about trade-offs or like, you know, where are you thriving and where are you struggling? And if we make, you know, if we push into this area, let's say, will other areas benefit or could we boost, you know, um, let's say, for example, you're working with an athlete, but maybe they've just lost their love of the sport. Well, their existential health is going down, right? They have no sense of meaning or purpose. And then their performance starts to decline or their emotional health starts to decline. So by addressing their sense of purpose, their existential health, you can actually improve their performance, whether mentally or emotionally or physically. So the benefit here is we can look at this with clients and say, where, again, where are you thriving? Where are you struggling? Where would you like to do the work? Uh, where are you making trade-offs? I mean, for elite athletes, we often trade relationship health for physical performance. Like it's understood that in fact, when you're achieving that gold medal, you'll probably not be that physically healthy. <laughs> you're, you're pushing your body to its extremes. You probably won't have a lot of relationships. You probably, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of things that will have suffered yeah. because of that. Um, and, and then, so what trade-offs are we making? And then, you know, where can we make the changes to have the biggest effects? If we, if we adjust this, if we think of like a mixer board, right? If we adjust this little volume knob, will that have benefits? How can we get the most benefits with the smallest number of adjustments. And do you think, I mean, in your experience with your clients, um, are, are we usually trading things off or, 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 or is it, are, can we get to that perfect balanced circle? I think six? in theory we can. Um, I think not everyone can given their demands. And so for example, like an elite athlete is always going to be trading things off. So like the more extreme your goals or the tasks that you're called on to do, the bigger the trade-offs. Same thing with something like speed. You know, if you're looking to achieve a certain kind of goal in a relatively short amount of time, you're probably going to be trading other things off. But for someone who is like kind of a regular mm -hmm. person who just wants to have a better life, yes, that is something that you can definitely work towards. And I guess that brings me to my next thought is around, you know, we touched on it a bit in regards to diet culture and not being that sustainable. Um, I mean, how important is sustainability in your mind? Well, I think for the people that need it, it's crucial, you know, and I always make the distinction about what, like, what kind of client are we working with and, and how do we go into the process with open eyes? So it could be, let's say a good example of that would be someone who is a professional MMA fighter and they need to cut weight for a professional fight that's coming up in four weeks, let's say. That is a case where you don't need to have the conversation about sustainability. Like everyone gets on the same page, you're very transparent about uh, trade-offs and you just go ahead with the project because this is their job. It's their job to cut weight, so that's the thing you do. Um, 
and then maybe you have you know the conversation about sustainability in terms of like okay what are we going to do to recuperate you after the fight for example um mm -hmm. but certainly sustainability yeah. should almost always be in the conversation in some way or another because like i said you know athletes retire and like life is full of change and so i i feel like sustainability regardless of goals should definitely be in the mix somehow but what that looks like is going to be different for different people and you know over our lifetimes, we come in and out of different interests, different levels of attention on things. Like, let's say, you know, uh, you're in your mid fifties and your kids have just left home and you've spent most of your time, you know, not like just kind of exercising once or twice a week, like a walk around the block or something like that. But then you discover, I don't know, cycling and you decide that you love cycling. And suddenly at 55, you're super into cycling and you're doing it six days a week, you know, <laughs> hundreds of kilometers a week. And your priorities have massively <laughs> changed all of a sudden. And this happens all the time. Massive life priorities change, right? So it's a different conversation about sustainability all of a sudden than you might have had 10 years earlier. So we, we, we always kind of think about long-term game plans while always understanding that priorities shift, bodies change, lives change. So it's almost like we, we look at things with kind of two focuses. One is like, what are we going to do immediately? Like what's next up on our agenda? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do this week? And then right. how does that fit right. into a longer term objective for you? And what we do, we have this little right. exercise we call the four circle exercise. And we, we just draw four circles. And one of the circles is like, what's the outcome you ultimately want? Um, and then, then this, we connect it with an arrow to, okay, what are you prepared to do in the service of that goal this month? And then the third circle is, what are you prepared to do this week? And the fourth circle is, what are you prepared to do today? And I really like that little formulation because it shows you very clearly what you do today links to the ultimate long-term goal. But it also gives you a little mm. bit of a prioritization filter. Like, you could do any number of things today. So it helps you say, okay, but what is the one that's going to give me the best chance of getting me the long-term outcome I want? That, that was my next question is around, like, can, how can I do this on my own? You know, like it'd be great to have a coach. I would love to have a coach every day, but um, yeah, how how do I how do I maintain that vision? You know, of today and tomorrow and next week, but keeping in mind also that longer term vision. You know, we really focus a lot on very simple exercises. We call some of them like the five minute action. So, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is designed to be extremely simple, extremely practical, like. What if it were part of your morning routine every morning to get up and do a four circles exercise? Uh, you know, what would that be like? Um, another exercise we do is the five whys, which many people have probably heard of. You know, someone says, I want to do this thing. And we say, oh, like, why, why is that important to you? Or, or what, would it, you know, what would it mean to you to achieve that? It doesn't always have to be a why. And they say, oh, it would mean this. And then we say, oh, you know, why does that matter? Or why is that a big deal? Or what would change about your life if you got that? And you just ask, you kind of go back and forth and every answer you get, you kind of question that answer. And over time with repetition of this, you start to get closer and closer to what's a more compelling long-term vision for you. And one of the things we found is that the, the goal you think you're working towards in the beginning often is not the real goal that you have. And so there's a lot of value mm. in like repeatedly... Yeah iterating these exercises um, and, and almost like structuring them yeah. into your day. You know, again, take five minutes at the beginning and end of your day, like put it in your calendar, give yourself a calendar reminder to do this kind of thing. And what you'll find is over time with repetition, 
you get so much more clarity. And, you know, like people will often say, well, I just don't feel motivated to work towards my goal. And I'm like, okay, is this a motivation issue? Because, you know, not every, like even like elite athletes, their alarm goes off at 445 and they're like, ugh, this sucks. I don't want to go to the pool today. I don't want to, you know, get up in the cold and do this. Um, so is it the, the motivation that's an issue or is it the fact that your long-term vision actually is not that compelling to you? And we find that all mm. the time. People are like, oh yeah, I want to lose weight. I want to have abs. I want to blah, blah, blah. And then like a month into it, especially if we explain to them, this is exactly what it's going to take. They're like, ah, you know what? I don't want that so much. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also sometimes, I guess, in, you know, in my experience as a personal trainer as well, it's like, you know, oh, I want to, I, I just want, I just want abs, you know, but even when we get there sometimes it's like, oh, yes, actually maybe it wasn't this, you know, it's like, okay, great. But really, how is that, you know, how has that had significant meaning in my life? And that's why I love the whys, right? Like just always continually yeah. asking, yeah, why, but why, but why? Like for anyone who's listening, who has ever achieved whatever they, that goal is they wanted, we'll just take abs for the, for an example, right? There were times in my life when I was performing and, you know, at my highest capacity and when I had the best body composition, you know, quote unquote best, like in quotation marks, right? Uh, and, and, like I had not resolved any of the issues that drove me there in the first place. So I think like one of our most incorrect assumptions about how this works is I'm going to be happy only once I achieve this goal. It does not work mm -hmm. that way. And it's almost even worse when you get to that point and you're like, okay, I have the abs. And then you're like, oh, but I'm still sad. And it's almost even worse <laughs> to know that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump back to that meme um, me at the start of 2020 and then me at the end of 2020. Now I can definitely relate to that. Um, and also, you know, we've just, we've just turned the, uh, turned the calendar to 2021 and, uh, regardless of a pandemic, you know, people make new year's resolutions. It's going to be different. There's big goals, big dreams, big aspirations coupled that with, the COVID kilos uh, and everything that's happened in 2020, where do we go from here? How do we, how do we make 2021 different to 2020, despite the fact that, you know, we're still potentially in lockdowns and restrictions and. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the first steps is, and this is a kind of, this is like a thing that's simple to say, but hard to do, which is, really coming to terms with a full accounting of the current reality. Like if you look around and you do an inventory or an audit of like how life is right now, um, you know, in my area, for example, like gyms are open, but I would not go to a gym right now. So, okay, gym's off the table, right? But I still have to exercise. So what does that mean? Um, you know, access to food. Can you go shopping? Are the shops open? Are you in lockdown? Like people are in different phases of, of constraints as we're talking about this. So the first thing you have to do is say, this is what the situation is. It's almost like shopping for a house or shopping for a car, right? Like what kind of house do you want? Well, how many kids do you have? You know, how far away from the city do you want to be? Do you want a garden? Do you have pets? Like there's all these kind of questions that you have to account for. So I think this is sort of the same thing, taking an extremely realistic um, audit of, of where you are now is an important step. So don't start imagining that you're suddenly going to have 
like the level of willpower and self-discipline that a Navy SEAL does, right? Like there's no way that you're going to suddenly leap out of bed and, and go to a boot camp every single day when you have never done that before. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and, I, and I think you have to do that in a way that's very compassionate, right? To, you know, maybe grieve a little bit some of the things that you've lost. Like maybe you lost access to a gym or to a coach or to a, you know, to a team or to activities that you enjoyed. Like I can't train grappling anymore. Like there's no way I could roll around, you know, hugging another person on the floor and choking them. Like <laughs> we are literally breathing each other's molecules. <laughs> well, you- yeah, yeah. Could. Clock, you clock could, is ticking yeah, on, on your infection. Let's just say that. Um, so, so that is really step one, but I think there's an opportunity there, which is to say, listen, like 2020 was so off the script. Uh, it really, it really tore yeah. apart a lot of assumptions that we had about the stability of how things are. And of course that is, um, you know, upsetting and destabilizing, but it's almost like a huge opening to define other opportunities. And so for me, here's an example. Um, I have to train outside and now I have to do it in every weather. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? Living in Vancouver, Canada Mm. is a little bit easier than living in say Montreal, but you know, I stocked up on rain gear. I stocked up on bands. Luckily I had a TRX. I'm bringing my kettlebells to the park. I'm hiking in the rain, like the pouring rain. Um, So I had to revise my ideas about what a workout involves and where my fitness space is and and what those activities will be. Um, And so the second step is really to say, okay, you know, I'm sad about the things that I'm missing, but what are the opportunities? Like maybe if I can't go to a restaurant, I learn to cook at home. Maybe I'm saving money on food and that money I can spend on something that's a little extra healthy. So the second step is like, what are the opportunities that this situation affords me? And not just the big opportunities, but the little ones too. Um, you know, does working at home give me five extra minutes to walk the dog? You know, where are all the little kind of cracks and crevices that have opened up in my life and how can I take advantage of them? And then the third thing is just to sort of break down whatever you want to do into the tiniest possible task. Like again, five minute action, mm. 30 second action. Yeah. And an example of that is um, I... Uh, I have a water glass next to my bathroom sink because I never drink enough water. <laughs> this is a thing for me. And so every morning I wake up and that glass is right there and I go to the bathroom and I drink my glass of water. And if I do nothing else for the rest of the day, that's at all productive, I have had a glass of water. So that's example. Like that's an example of the level of difficulty that we're talking about. It should be a task that leads towards your goals that you can do every day without fail, no matter what. I'm pretty sure I'd get up every day and drink a glass of water because it's right there in my bathroom. Um, and, and you just kind of, that's it. You lather, rinse, repeat, do that thing over and over and over again. And when you feel ready to add a new one, do it. But you know, the conventional way of doing things will not work. So feel free to abandon it right now. Like the whole thoughts of transformation, new year, new me, you know, radical life overhauls just happened in 2020. We call that traumatic like was everyone like, yay, 2020 was such a great, amazing opportunity for me to like completely question everything about humanity. Eh, you know, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's kind of regardless of 2020, right? Like these little things, these finding five minutes, I mean, that can be done in, in any year at any time. And we don't, we don't have to wait for the calendar to tick over. Um, I guess there was some 
for me personally, there was, um, you know, during lockdown, I was meditating more, you know, not having to go into the office every day and having that time in the morning meant that I could spend more time meditating. Uh, and I also yeah, learned how to make pasta at home. So I ate a lot of pasta. <laughs> um, Christy, you mentioned before that you really work with behavior change. Can you give us a bit more of uh, a bit more of yeah, an insight? Yeah, so into what I mean, over the years, you know, we have evolved as a company. Like in the beginning, when we started out, maybe fifteen years ago, we thought that our job for clients was just to give them information, and then once they had the right information that was based on expertise and evidence, they would naturally be motivated to go and do it. <laughs> well, clearly that was a very wrong assumption. And over the years, we came to realize that helping people build systems to change their behavior and having insight into their own behavior was vastly more useful and important. Like we were really in, in the business of helping people, like guiding people, navigating and supporting them through their own like self-guided change process. So we could provide expertise, obviously, information, all that. But ultimately, you know, people were kind of all on their own journeys. And so the question is like, how do we amplify and facilitate the natural human elements that help us change our behavior? And I mean, this, this happens kind of at all, all levels from the most superficial to the deepest. Um, and so, you know, we really started thinking about like, how can we intervene in people's lives again at every stage? Like the, a superficial change would be like the one I described, right? Put a water glass next to your bathroom sink. That's a very small change that you can make in your environment or put your workout shoes out by the doors. So you remember to go for a walk. These are very superficial changes. And I think a lot of habit change kind of stops there. Right. But we are also prepared to dig into deeper things. Like we talked about, right? Your sense of purpose. Why are you even doing this? Like, what is the point of all of this? Or how are your relationships? How's the quality of your relationships? Are you being supported? Uh, do you have a community? Do you have a tribe? Um, you know, is there friction in your relationships? Is that, actually, is that actually what's causing some of your health and fitness problems? I mean, I can't tell you how many clients we have who come to us and think they have a nutrition problem and then discover, you know what, I have a relationship problem. Like I'm stress eating because, you know, I have all this conflict in my household. Mm. So I kind of joke that we break up marriages, but it's only half yeah. a joke. Like, <laughs> you know, like a lot of people are, are uh, sublimating a lot of life problems and life stressors into food mm. and nutrition mm. and, and yeah. exercise. So, you know, for us, behavior change operates at like all, all levels of depth of people and like whatever level people are comfortable working at, that's how we will work with them. And do you think motivation is a big part of that? I mean, we've, we've got all these days, we have more information at the tips of our fingers. And it's kind of like what you said, right? We can give people that we've got access actually to all the information that we could possibly want about nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. We're not <laughs> doing it. But I guess, like you said, it kind of comes back to all of these things, right? It's it's not just the, uh, I need to fix my eating. It's actually, I need to look at everything. I think that a lot of people think that they're just not motivated. I'm putting motivation in finger quotes right now. Um, you know, if I haven't been able to do something, it's because I'm not motivated enough. I think that's what we often assume. Or I have to be motivated first in order to take action. I think that's another common misconception. But you know, what I would say is that, mm. like I said, with our example of elite athletes, um, 
you know, very rarely are they 110% motivated to get out on the field, to get out on the pool, you know, in the pool, to do their drills and skills. Like motivation is a very weak predictor of whether we're going to do a thing or not. It's great when it's there. Like when you have a high motivation day, it's awesome. Like enjoy it. But it really is not going to help you um, do these things. Rather, what we're looking at is building structures and systems and accountabilities and uh, accountability like to other people and routines, you know? So, so the secret right. is actually honestly much more banal. So, right. I mean, having a deeper why is important. Like there's no, there's no reason to do something without a purpose, but you cannot expect that every day you will feel motivated. You absolutely will not. Um, and motivation typically comes after we've acted, not before. So for example, let's say you're sitting at your desk and it's a stressful work day and you're like, I should get up and take the dog for a walk. And you're like, oh, but I don't feel like it. It's raining, whatever. But you do it anyway because the dog has to go out. And, you know, you get out, you get moving. And after 10, 15 minutes, you actually feel pretty good. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to do an extra five minutes. You come back, you feel mm -hmm. energized. And so like your whole mood sure. and your sense of self-satisfaction has changed because you did the action. So, but I mean, I do think there's an issue of you can certainly amplify motivation, right? So like, let's say before you walk the dog, you put on your favorite song. And now you're feeling a little bit more, you know, bumped up, right? You're feeling a little bit more like you want to leave the house. I think there's certainly things that can uh, increase our motivation, but it's extremely unsustainable and unreliable as the only thing holding this project together. And another thing that can potentially help to hold the project together is support, right? Community, family, partner, coach. We have a saying around precision nutrition, which is that the best athletes have the most coaches. And it's interesting because like regular people tend to think of coaches, so not, not everyone thinks this way, but many people feel like, well, if I have to go and get coaching or, or counseling or therapy or whatever it is, if I have to get help, then somehow it's because I have failed or I am weak. Like it signals some deficiency in me that I can't do it all myself. And I think this is like a very Western philosophy kind of idea, right? That we have this misconception that somehow as an individual, we should be able to know and do everything which is ludicrous. Like I can't fly a plane. I can't build a road. Like, I, I rely on other people <laughs> to do these things for me. Right. Um, and so, so support and guidance is massive. Like human beings are social animals. We are social species. And so like, there is nothing in which we should be working alone. There's no sphere. Now I'm not saying you can't act individually. I mean, I'm an individually motivated person. Most of the time my activities are solitary. Um, but, you know, everyone, no matter what their inclination, will benefit from support and community and, and some kind of, you know, relationship organized around their goal. So, again, like you said, it could be a supportive partner. It could be um, I've recruited my partner's daughter to help me uh, with healthy cooking in the household. Right. So it's like, OK, um, like my partner is not super motivated, but I'm like, ooh, how can I get his daughter involved? You know, so now she's now she's working on dad, right? Hey, dad, we made a salad and you have yeah. to eat it. I'm like, yeah, you have to eat it because she's your daughter, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so I've, I've kind of like, you know, chosen a sneaky angle on that one. But um, it could be, I mean, I think getting coaching is huge and you know, like nothing worth doing can be done alone. That's one of our mottos. Um, so I think people really underestimate the degree to which community matters. And again, it could it could even simply be going to a place where everyone is doing similar things. So even if you have almost no interaction with them, going to the gym where everyone else is working out 
can make you feel like, you know what, I am, I'm with people who are kind of grappling with the same questions and struggles as I am. Uh, you mentioned before stress eating, basically. Um, you know, maybe it's not nutrition itself, but it's something that's making you stressed and therefore you're taking that out on your food and your eating habits. The first thing I would say is that most people are experiencing more stress than they realize. So if you, you can Google this, there's online stress indexes that you can take. Most people, I think, do not adequately recognize the amount of stress that they're under because stress is cumulative. So let's say, you know, your job is not so great and then you have a long commute and then you have maybe, I don't know, a nagging little health problem, like, a, I don't know, elbow tendonitis. And then, you, you know, something's an issue in the household and you've got chores and like all of these things add up. So every stressor that you have is going to add to the pile. Um, and so maybe no one thing is massively stressful, um, but it's all these like little paper cuts that just add up. And so we know that stress has effects throughout our physiology and our psychology. So it, like at the structural level, we can look at a brain of someone who's chronically stressed and see changes in it. Or we can look inside their body and see changes in hormones or other, you know, um, cell signaling molecules that tell us, oh, inflammation is up. Uh, this body thinks that it's experiencing a threat. So, you know, one of the first points to, to take away is that stress affects all of the systems. I mean, you, you get dumber under stress. Um, now I should distinguish here between acute and, and chronic stress. So acute stress can actually make us a little bit sharper, right? So let's say you're having a really chill, like relaxed day, you know, you're hanging around at home and all of a sudden you just hear like a weird noise, right? And you're like, oh, I wonder what that is, right? You get sharper, like your senses sharpen. Uh, maybe a bird flies into the window and startles you, right? Like all of a sudden you're super sharp, you're super there. And then once you realize that was a bird that just bumped the window, you calm down again and the stressor's gone and you're not marinating on it forever, right? Um, and that's how we're designed to process stress. Immediate, short-term, potentially life-threatening, get the job done and get out. But most of our stress is not like that. And most right. of it is, I, I don't wanna, I wanna be careful about using this word, imaginary, right? Like most of the time, whatever we experience as stressful is not going to kill or physically harm us. Like an email. <laughs> <laughs> Someone yes. writing as per my last email. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's the challenge is that yeah. very innocuous things, it's almost like a psychic allergy, right? Innocuous things can cause large responses. And so in terms of its effects on appetite and eating and food behaviors, what's interesting is that people have different responses to chronic stress. So uh, I, I would say some, the majority of people seem to eat more under stress under chronic stress, kind of chronic low grade or like mild to moderate stress. And then some people eat less. So people are kind of wired differently uh, in terms of their, their response to mild, mild to moderate chronic stress, mm -hmm. extreme stress, like a tsunami, you know, or a hurricane or running for your life. Typically everyone, nobody's eating under that condition. Um, but if we think about that kind of chronic low-grade grinding stress, yeah. um, it is somewhat individual. Um, and we also, like, if, if you're one of the people that, that does eat more when you're stressed, you're probably also reaching for certain kinds of foods, foods that we call hyperpalatable. They taste extra good. They're highly processed, high in fat, sugar, salt, starch, like just the things that kind of light up our brains 
reward systems. And so like your brain, it's, this is not like a personal deficiency. Like your brain is trying to find ways to feel better. And it's like, aha, I know that sucrose is going to make me feel better. Boom. Let's go find that. Like your brain is and body are suffering uh, and, and they're just casting about for the, the easiest to access solution. And, you know, we know that like babies are given sucrose as a painkiller. Yeah. So like sucking and eating and chewing and getting sweet stuff is one of our earliest um, anesthetics. Mm-hmm. And unless you have a really big toolbox of other coping mechanisms, right. like you mentioned meditation, we are going under stress, we regress. So we are going to reach for the thing that made us feel good as a baby. Similar topic mental health. uh, And of course, stress can be part of that. But I guess thinking along the lines of, you know, anxiety, depression, what can you tell us anything about the links between your gut health and mental health? So I think traditionally, we have thought of our bodies as being like a collection of parts, right? Like I have a kidney, and I have a heart, and I have a lung, and I have a thigh bone, like, but and and we, we tend to imagine these things are kind of like unrelated to each other, right? But what we've discovered is that there's a very strong connection between our central nervous system and our gastrointestinal tract. Um, You know, some people call it the gut brain access. Um, And we know that the gastrointestinal tract has its own fairly distinct nervous system, which is called the enteric nervous system. So the gastrointestinal tract is almost like a like a mini world within a world. Like it has its own uh, nervous system. It's responsible for a huge part of our immunity, actually. Um, and so, uh, you know, a, a lot of mm-hmm. and a lot of what does that job are the uh, thriving, diverse microbial communities that we host in, in all areas of our digestive tract. So we have, I mean, bazillions of different species of bacteria, viruses, fungi living inside of us. Um, and they kind of are like located in very specific areas. So you have some on your teeth and some on your tongue and some in your lungs, and some in your airways and some, you know, in like, so that, and they have different jobs at different phases. We know these microbial communities are, are very, very important in ensuring mental health. And they, they seem to, they do this in a couple of ways. So they seem to act on uh, what's called the vagus nerve. So there's like a pathway that goes upstairs to the brain from the gut. So they're able to act on, so whatever we eat can act on that pathway. Um, That's how our brain knows that we're full or hungry. So we might secrete hormones and chemical messengers and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff that goes upstairs. Um, And then these microbes in our gut also themselves are like little factories making things. And so they make things like short chain fatty acids, which we know are also involved in um, particular physiological processes. So there is a very emerging close link between our brain and our gastrointestinal tract, which then has implications for our mental health. And we also know that in like serious um, like personality disorders or like cognitive disorders, like schizophrenia, that kind of thing, or neurodevelopmental kinds of disorders, there's often a dysregulation of the gut as well. And again, we don't know like if it's a chicken or an egg, like which came first, but we know that there's a very, very tight link between these things. Many people, depending on how they do the low carb diet, Mm. but many people are cutting out a significant proportion of fermentable carbohydrates that then becomes food for our gut microbes. Um, And so a lot of the dietary strategies that people are trying are actually harming their gut microbial communities. 
So what should we be feeding them? So anything that's high in soluble, you know, fruits, vegetables, beans and legumes, whole grains, if you can tolerate them, even starchy tubers, like things like potatoes mm-hmm. always have such a bad rap, you know, um, but even things like, you know, potatoes, sweet yeah. potatoes, yeah. yams, like taro, yucca, like all that starchy tuber stuff. They love that stuff. Anything that they can chew on and ferment. So basically any kind of high fiber carbohydrate, they are just going to love. Krista, if you could leave, uh, you know, one message for our listeners as we step into 2021, what, what would it be? To be compassionate with yourself because nobody knows what's going on right now. Like we, like every day is a new adventure and, you know, like self-criticism increases our stress. So we, so we talked about stress, self-criticism. Uh, your brain treats it as a threat. So don't add to your own stress level. There's enough coming at you from the outside world. We know from the research that compassion is a much more effective tool in change. So acceptance, compassion, and acceptance doesn't mean you have to like whatever situation you're in, but you have to see it clearly. And we've definitely found with our clients, you know, when we've encouraged them to work on self-compassion in very practical ways, like it doesn't have to be touchy-feely. But when they just take a different perspective of like, you know what, this is hard right now and I'm doing the best I can. And you know what, I'm going to be kind of nice to myself in this, in this difficult moment. Like that really changes the game for a lot of people. I've got one final question that we ask all of our guests. Um, what Gosh, do you what want amazing more than question. anything else in this life? Um, I, I, I think it would return to the original meaning I had at the start of this call is, is ultimately I want, I think we overrate our general importance in the universe. <laughs> you know, like we we tend to feel like we are at the center of our own universe. But um, but I do want to feel like I made a contribution. You know, and so whenever I have to shuffle off uh, across the rainbow bridge, um, I want to feel like I did something of value um, and somehow made other people's lives better, even in like, they don't have to know about it. That's not important, but something that I did in the world made someone's life better. That's what I would like to, to leave behind for sure. Krista, it has been so great chatting to you. Where can people find you? First and foremost at precisionnutrition.com. There is a ton of free stuff there, articles, infographics. Um, there's stuff for fitness professionals. If you're a coach or trainer, there's things for just regular folks. Uh, everything you can think of, like food, mindset, fitness, just everything. Um, you can you can hunt around. Like I'm on Instagram uh, at Stumptuous, S-T-U-M-P-T-U-O-U-S, which is also the name of my website, Stumptuous.com. I have not really updated it in a while, uh, so there's nothing super new there. It's actually, I mean, I started it in the mid-90s, so it's a little bit uh, aged. Um, and then if you're looking for a book and you don't mind some swear words, uh, you can also look look up Krista Scott Dixon on Amazon. Uh, there is a book on um, uh, kind of how to work with eating issues. So if you have issues with food and eating, uh, there is a very accessible, full of swear words uh, workbook that you can try there. So that's where you can find me. <laughs> And listeners, we'll be putting all of that information up in the podcast notes as well. So if you didn't quite get it then, no need to rewind. Just check out the podcast notes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and got as much from it as I did. 
always be the first to know when new episodes are released simply by subscribing to our podcast now on the app you're currently listening to. Thanks for listening. To our bodies, hearts and minds, be kind. I just do what comes natural.